Hello and welcome to Bible 101. We're going to do a second uh, lesson here today and it's kind of to make up for lost time. I know it's been a long time since I've actually posted anything new. So I wanted to make up for lost time because probably this week it'll be difficult to do anything new. So I'm going to leave these two on here for this week. But I had something on my heart the other day and this lesson kind of hit me out of nowhere. I taught this a uh, long time ago and it came back to mind. And today I'm going to be talking about questions. This is a debated topic. Is it okay to ask God questions? And I want to take my text in the book of Luke chapter 10 and verses 25 through 29. And it says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him saying, master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So before we actually begin, I want to talk about this. It is okay to ask questions. And I'm going to read some scripture to prove this point. Let's go over to the book of Psalm chapter number 10. Go to Psalms chapter 10 and verse number one. We're going to find out there's plenty of questions in the Bible. Uh, Psalms 10 and one says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? Let's go back to Psalm chapter six and verse number three. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Psalm 22 and one. Let's flip over to Psalm 22 and one. Uh, and it says this, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Psalm chapter 10 uh, uh, also has many questions in it, but let's go over to Psalm chapter 13 and verses one and two. Uh, Psalm 13, one and two. And it says this, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? So it's okay to ask questions. There's a lot of questions recorded in the Bible. In fact, in the book of Job, there's a lot of questions asked there. And God doesn't necessarily give him answers. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But I want to ask you a question. What is the source of of your questions? What's the source of my questions? I ask myself, do we ask in order to justify ourselves, as in our text, or do we sincerely desire an answer from God? The book of Job is one big question mark about the justice of God, but God did not answer his questions. God's purpose was, simp was simply to tell him, uh, I am God and you are not. Really, if all of God's questions was tied up into one sentence, it would just simply be, I am God and you are not. Job was satisfied with this answer. You can read in the book of Job, chapter number 42 and verses 1 through 6. And uh, you'll have to pardon me while I turn to some of these scriptures. And I encourage you, if you can, to follow along when you do listen to this. And uh, Job, chapter number uh, 42 and verses one through six, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Why is he saying this? Because that's the question God asked him. He said, therefore, have I uttered that I understood not? 
things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee. He's quoting God there. But then he says, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, God, now that I've seen you, um, I repent. I realize I spoke about things I had no business speaking about, and I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. When he saw God in the proper perspective, uh, he repented of the questions that he had asked God. Now, again, I repeat to you, God did not answer any of his questions. God just simply responded with, I am God and you are not, basically. And uh, Job repented for ever asking God questions about his justice. So two things you must realize in life. Number one, there's only one God. James 2 and 19 says, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. And number two, you must understand you are not him. So to fear God is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 9 and 10. Let's read that. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10. Uh, again, I just had this lesson on my heart. I hope it's a blessing to somebody. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. The definition of a fool is one who does not fear God. Uh, Psalm 14 and 1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, if you read this in the King James, you'll notice that there is is in italics. So literally, uh, that, that means it's not in the original. So literally, it just says the fool has said in his heart, no God. So they reject his existence. And it could also mean they reject his demands. So it's okay to ask questions. But we must discover the source of our questions. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 23. 2 Timothy 2 and 23. Uh, and let's read that quickly. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 23 says, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes. Now, this kind of goes back to what I was teaching in the last lesson, that there's a lot of people that are going to challenge you with hard questions. And the Bible says that the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon asking him hard questions. But what she was doing was she was sincerely testing his wisdom to see if he was really as wise as what the other nations had said that he was. And when he answered her questions and there was nothing too hard for him, then she said, well, I heard of you, but surely the half was not told me. So she asked the question sincerely. Some people are going to come up to you and they're going to ask questions and they're not going to be sincere. Now notice Paul is writing to his son in the gospel, Timothy, who is also a preacher. And he gives him this, uh, this advice, this command. In fact, I won't say advice. I say command, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid. Why? Knowing that they do gender strifes. Now, you may ask, have you ever been asked a question that, that uh, was for the purpose of gendering strife? Absolutely. Many, many, many times. Um, and what Paul tells us is, he's telling Timothy, but he's also telling every one of us, foolish and unlearned questions you need to avoid because nothing will come out of them but strife. They gender strife. Okay, realize some questions fall under the category of questioning God's justice. This is error. Let's go over to the book of Romans, chapter 9, verse 9 through 23. Um, and there's other examples of questions, but I'm focusing primarily on questioning God's justice. Let's go over to uh, Romans 9, 
uh, and we'll go uh, verse 9 through 23. There's a lot of reading here. For this is the word of promise. At this time will it come, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, having neither done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Now notice verse 20. This is really my primary focus here. It says, Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the power to power of the clay, of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? Okay, so notice what he's saying here. He says, you might ask and say, well, if God has power to have mercy on one and not on another and show compassion one and not to another, um, and if nobody can resist his will, why does he yet find fault? And, and, and he said, uh, look, this is not a good question. This is a foolish question. He says, who are you to reply against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Uh, and, and this is a reference to the book of Isaiah. And then he says, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel into honor and another into dishonor? Then he asks this question, what if God, I just want you, but let me put myself into Paul's shoes and explain what he's saying here. He says, I want you to put yourself uh, in, in, in maybe uh, in, 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 uh, in my mindset here, and you could consider this. What if God was willing to show his wrath and to make his power known? What if he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before uh, prepared unto glory so he says who are you to reply against god you don't know uh the mind of god uh and and so you're it's foolish to question god's justice what if god endured with much long suffering that vessel of wrath fitted to destruction one of the most foolish things you could do is to begin to question the justice of God. You might say, well, why is it that God showed mercy to this person, but not to this person? Well, nobody knows the clay like the potter. Only God has that eternal perspective. He sees things from eternity, kind of a bird's eye view of time, if I could put it like that. And that's not a perfect way of putting it. But uh, for the sake of being limited in my vocabulary to explain the eternal um, I'm just going to try to explain it like this. He's got a bird's eye view of time. So God sees past, present, and future. God sees the heart. Um, and in fact, let's go and, and read that. Jeremiah chapter number 17. Uh, I'm going to read this quickly here. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verses 9 and 10. Excuse me while I find this here. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. And uh, we'll read that here. It says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So you don't know your own heart. But then verse 10 says, I, the Lord, 
Search the heart. I try the reins or the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So only God knows the heart and only God knows the mind. I can't read your mind. I can't read your heart, but God can. And so God can judge righteously because he sees what's in man. Um, now, the Bible says there's coming a day where small and great are going to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And if it was up to us to judge, there's a lot of people that would be saved that's not going to be saved. Uh, the Bible said there's going to be some that's going to come before the Lord and they're going to say, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. In your name, we've done wonderful works. And and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, if we were standing in the place of judgment, we'd probably say, come on in. You, you presented a good case. I think you ought to be saved. But that's not the way God sees it. Because God sees the heart. God sees the heart. Uh, and I, I noticed that uh, we're being joined. If, if you want to try to call in, you could try to call and hopefully it'll work uh, if you have a comment. But uh, we're talking about questioning God and is it okay to ask God questions? Well, my answer is yes, they're all over the Bible, but um, it is not okay to question God's justice. And that's what I'm talking about here today. Job's error was questioning God's justice when all he could see was the earthly perspective. Now, let's go uh, back to the book of Job, and we're going to discuss Job at length here. Let's go to Job chapter 1, uh, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 6 through verse 12. And I think there's a reason why the book of Job starts off with this. And uh, it says this, Job chapter 1 and verse number 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. The Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and sheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his abundance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Okay, and then you can also read in chapter number two, it says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, from whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Now, some people would wrongfully uh, make the statement. They would say, well, it seems like God pointed to Job and says, Satan, why don't you test him? But if you read very carefully and if you look at the Hebrew, what he's actually saying is, so you've been considering my servant Job, have you? He understood uh, what the devil was doing, and he understood that that he had been considering Job. And so uh, it, we know that he had been considering Job because notice how quick he was to respond to God's uh, accusation. So you've been considering Job, have you? He said, there's there's no man like him. And the devil says, well, yeah, I'll tell you why, because you've prospered all that he has. And then even after God gave him power uh, to take his possessions and, and, and obviously to kill his children and on and on and on, we could go into all those things, uh, then... Uh, God brings him up again and it says, and Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life.
Okay, so I, I want to uh, just bring out a point here and say, you know, it's easy for us to read the book of Job, and we have chapters one and chapter two to kind of bring some context into it and to understand why Job was being tested. But Job didn't know that. Job was not privy to what was going on in the throne room uh, before he was tested. And so the reason why Job starts asking all of these questions is because he didn't have that eternal perspective. He didn't have that bird's eye view of time that we were talking about earlier. And so he begins to ask all of these questions because he doesn't understand that he's being tested, that he's being tried. Uh, now, I, I want you to consider something else here. You might say, why is God, how can you say that God is just? If he would allow Job, all that Job has to be destroyed, if he would allow him to have bulls on his body, his children to be killed, on and on and on and on. Well, let me kind of bring this perspective in. It's been estimated. Now, we don't have proof of this, but it's been estimated that Job's trial lasted in totality less than one year. Consider that less than one year. But we know that Job was full of days when he died. So consider it was just a tiny, tiny fragment of Job's life and uh, that, that he suffered, that he went through all of this pain. And yet he had all of these years of prosperity. It is true. He faced more in that, that less than one year than me and you will probably face in an entire lifetime. Yet it was a small fragment of his life. And then consider the implications of eternity. Was Job saved? Absolutely dwells in heaven for all eternity. So, I mean, when you look at it from that perspective, really, it, it, it's not uh, much of a question on God's justice, is it? So let me, let me just bring this up. God's justice is perfect. Number one, he knows the beginning and the ending. Let's read Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. And uh, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. And uh, yes, Brother Ross, uh, going back to what you put here depends on the motive of the question. That is exactly what we're talking about here. Uh, the motive of the question. What is the motive? We took our text from the man that asked the question of Jesus, and it says he asked that question to justify himself. So what I'm trying to point out here today is what is the purpose of your question? Uh, and once again, just to, to read that verse of scripture, it says, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29, it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor. So his question was not a righteous question. His question was one to justify himself. So that's what we're talking about. Um, okay, so let's go and, and read it because uh, the scripture I just mentioned here in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 10. Number one, I want to point out that God knows the beginning and the ending. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. And let's read that quickly. It says this, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So remember, God's justice is perfect because number one, he knows the beginning and the, and the ending. Number two, no one knows the clay like the potter. Jeremiah 18, uh, one through six. Let's read that quickly. Jeremiah chapter 18, 
Verse 1 through 6, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord? Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. Um, so nobody knows the clay like the potter. He knows the clay. He's familiar with it. He's intimate with it. You can also read Romans 9, 21 through 23. I'm not going to read that again, uh, but God knows the clay. So how can the clay say to him that formed it, why have you made me like this? And if I could flip that question around and say, how can the clay say to him that forms all clay, why have you made another lump of clay like you have made it? Uh, none of us have the right to question him. He's the potter. He has power over the clay. He can make us any way that he chooses to make us. So no one knows the clay like the potter. Number three, God has the eternal perspective in view. Let's read Isaiah chapter 57 and verse number 15. Isaiah 57 and 15. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. So notice he inhabits eternity. So God has the eternal perspective in view because he judges from the eternal perspective. He can judge perfectly. Number four, ultimately he is God and is perfect in wisdom and knowledge. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number four. Deuteronomy 32 and 4. And uh, give me just a little bit of time to turn there here. Deuteronomy 32 and 4 uh, says this. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Second Samuel 22 and verse 31. Again, I encourage you to follow along with me uh, if you have your Bible there. Second Samuel chapter 22 Verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. And let's read Psalm 19 and 7. Psalm 19, 7. Uh, once again, Psalm chapter 19 and verse number 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So ultimately, he is God. He's perfect in wisdom and knowledge. Are you perfect in wisdom and knowledge? Um, well, I don't know about you, but I can certainly say from my perspective, I am certainly not perfect in wisdom and knowledge. Only God is. Okay, uh, number, uh, I'm losing track of the number system here. I think this is number uh, five. Yes, number five is God. He is omnipotent. Let's read Revelation 19 and six. Let's go to Revelation 19 and six. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse number six. And I heard it as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Okay. So, uh, he holds sway over all things. He is the ruler of all. He is almighty God. He's omnipotent. And then omni, omni means all. 
and then potent, obviously. So he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's almighty God. And then the Bible says he's omnipresent. Uh, that means omni, again, all present. He's present everywhere at the same time. Let's read 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse number 9. And I'm trying to prove this point here. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse number 9. And it says this, uh, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Okay, let's read Acts 7, 49. Acts chapter 7, verse 49. And I like actually flipping Bible pages. Um, There's something about having a Bible in your hands. Uh, Acts 7, verse 49. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? So he said, heaven's my throne, the earth is my footstool. I don't want to think, I don't want you to think of that as uh, God, you know, sitting on the throne in heaven, putting his feet on the earth. But God is a spirit and he's everywhere present at the same time. Let's read Isaiah 66 and 1. Now, for more proof of this, Isaiah 66 and 1. I like to give enough scripture to choke a camel, as they say. Isaiah 66 and 1. Uh, thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me and where is the place of my rest? So he's omnipresent. God's justice takes heaven and earth into perspective. All right. So this is number seven. Now he is omniscient, omni, all right, science, meaning he's all knowing. Let's read Proverbs 15 and three, Proverbs 15 and three. We'll go there. Proverbs 15 and 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Let's read Hebrews 4, 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. This one I could quote, but I'm, I want to actually take time to turn there and read it. Uh, let's go to uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 4 and verse 13. It says this, Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight, for all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Okay, so, and then let's read one more, Psalm 94, 7 through 10. Psalm 94, 7 through 10. Psalm 94, 7 through 10. And it says this, uh, yet they say, the Lord shall not see it, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand, you brutish among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that uh, that uh, chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall he not know? God is all-knowing. He knows everything. So critiquing God's justice is, of course, on a much lesser scale, like uh, a non-artistic person criticizing a master painter halfway through his project. Let's look at Romans chapter 4 and verse number 17. Let's go to the book of Romans chapter 4, verse number 17. I can make a very long series out of this. In fact, when I taught this initially, I did make a series out of this, but I'm, I'm not going to do that here. I'm going to attempt to cover all of this in one lesson, which won't be easy. I'm going to have to leave a lot out. So let's go over to the book of Romans chapter 4. And verse number 17, it says this, as it is written, 
Uh, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. God knows the heart of man before they are born. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, Psalm 139, 13 through 14. Uh, in fact, let's read that last one. Psalm 139, uh, verses 13 and 14. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. And I hope you've realized by now that primarily my teaching is consisting of Scripture, and uh, I intend for it to be that way. Psalm 139, 13 and 14 says this, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest, lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. Uh, and in thy book, all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned uh, when as yet there was none of them. Okay, so God knows us before we're, bo we're born. He knows the heart of man before we're born. Our wisdom, here's another point. Our wisdom is stupid to God. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 19. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3 and 19. And uh, we'll flip over there and read this quickly. 1 Corinthians 3 and 19. And uh, here in a moment, I'm going to explain where this lesson came from. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 19 says this. Flip back here once. Okay. Uh, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Uh, that obviously is a rhetorical question. God, God is asking, that, um, uh, Paul, excuse me, is asking that question. And the answer is a very obvious answer. Uh, Yes, of course. Okay, and then let's read Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. And it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, so uh, obviously the wisdom of the world is absolutely stupid to God. So I ask you again, who are we to reply against God? Repeating the question from Romans chapter 9, verse 20. You can ask questions, um, and I'm, I'm not saying it's a sin to ask a question of, of God's justice necessarily, but realize that God does not owe you an answer. Sometimes we may think our questions are sincere, but we don't know our own heart. Again, I remind you of Jeremiah 17 and 9. says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God judges the heart of the issue before it's even acted out. You can read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28, where Jesus said, He that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath already committed adultery with her in his own heart. Uh, God sees the heart. He judges the issue while it's still in the heart. We don't know the heart, but God does. So he judges perfectly. The word of God tells us that we must become like little children in order to be saved. Matthew 18, 3 through 4. We're going to read this quickly. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 through 4. Um, and it says this, And said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom 
of heaven. So he said very clearly, we must become like little children in order to be saved. We must model the child in humility. That is how we come to God. James 4 and 6. Let's read James chapter 4 and verse number 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submission and humility give us power over the devil. James 4, uh, uh, 6 through 10. I'm not going to take time to read it, but it says, Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You must first submit yourself to, to God, and then the devil will flee. God hates pride. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. I'm going to do my best to quote it. It says, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, uh, feet that be swift and running to mission, a false witness that sp speaketh lies, he that soweth discord among the brethren. And I may have forgotten one, but uh, uh, he says God hates, number one, was a proud look or a haughty attitude is what that's talking about. God hates pride. Uh, and so I like what the Amplified says of that. It says a proud look, the attitude that makes one overestimate himself and discount others. Jesus opened the Sermon on the Mount with this statement in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verse number three through five. And let's, let's read this quickly. Matthew five, uh, verses three through five. Matthew chapter five, verses three through five. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we're going to be getting into this in our study of the book of Matthew to, to, to discover what all this means. Uh, but blessed means more than just a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. This is a state of well-being in relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus's ministry. The poor in spirit are those who recognize they're in need of God's help. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to those who confess their spiritual bankruptcy. Those who mourn the spiritual, emotional, or financial loss resulting from sin should lead to mourning and a longing for God's forgiveness and healing. You could read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. The meek are the gentle, those who do not assert themselves uh, over others in order to further their own agendas in their own strength, but who will nevertheless inherit the earth because they trust in God to direct uh, the outcome of events. Moses saw God's hinder parts and spoke face to face with God, and he was described as the meekest of all the earth. Deuteronomy 34.10, Numbers 12.3, Exodus 33.17 through, 20, uh, through, uh, through uh, 23. So we are not to be like children in understanding. You can read that in Ephesians 4.11 through 14. But we should be as children uh, or as children desiring the sincere milk of the word of God, 1 Peter 2 and 2. So in attitude, we are to be humble and meek and recognize our need of God. That is how we come to God. Without God, we are nothing. John 15, 5, he said, for without me, you can do nothing, Jesus speaking. But we can do all things through him. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all, all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. So while it is okay to ask questions, there comes a time we must humble ourselves before God and recognize his lordship over us. A child can discern his parents um, uh, and he, he can dishonor his parents, but uh, that does not negate, or he can disown, excuse me, a child can disown his parents but that does not negate the fact that he would not be alive without them. So if you're waiting for the day where all of your questions will be answered, that day will never come. Faith does not mean not having questions. 
Faith is despite your questions. You take God at his word. Hebrews 11 and 1. Now faith is the substance of, th of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Uh, for by it, the elders obtained a good report. It says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And then it says in verse six, for without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's very, very clear in the scripture uh, that we see from, from some of the things I mentioned here that uh, faith is despite your questions, you still take God at your word. Look, just because you have faith does not mean you're, you're not going to have questions. And, and I do think this is important to talk about because so many times we think of faith as kind of this once in a lifetime place we finally get to where we have no doubt in our mind whatsoever. Um, and that's not necessarily what faith is. You're always going to have questions. I can tell you today, there's unanswered questions that I still have. But despite my questions, I still believe. There's going to be times you have questions, but just keep believing, even if all your questions are not answered. Now, let's go back to the story of Job just for a moment. Notice uh, Job's response to God's voice. When God finally spoke out of the whirlwind, and, and, and we have all of this example of, of Job speaking and speaking and speaking and his friends trying to reason with him. And Job keeps speaking. And, you know, Job's got some pretty good points. He's talking about the wicked prospering. Uh, he, he's talking about how it seems like there's no bands in their death. And it, it seems like they have great riches and it seems like they're blessed. Whereas there's people that are righteous, that are poor. And he has a very good example. And if you doubt that, look at the parable that Jesus told about uh, the poor man, Lazarus, that was righteous and the rich man that was not righteous. But then if you look at the rest of the story, and I'd like to preach a message someday called the rest of the story. Uh, we all know about probably Paul Harvey uh, that used to talk about, and that is the rest of the story. Well, let me tell you the rest of the story. If all you do is look at the poor man Lazarus sitting at the gate, the dogs licking his sores, begging for even a crumb to eat, and you look at the rich man in his house, you're going to say, this is wrong. God is not just. But let me tell you the rest of the story. There came a day where that rich man was burning in hell, begging for even a drop of water from the tip of Lazarus's finger. Whereas before he wouldn't even speak to Lazarus, he'd march right past him. Uh, he wouldn't give him any crumbs or any food before. But now he's begging that Lazarus would just take the tip of his finger and dip it in a little water and cool his tongue. And Lazarus is comforted and in the bosom of Abraham in heaven. So, uh, you know, if you all you do is look at the earthly perspective, you're going to get off track. You're going to get confused. You're going to question the justice of God. But once you get that eternal perspective, and that's why I think the book of Job starts with that eternal perspective, the perspective of heaven, so that you can understand what's about to happen. That's why we can read Job and understand. But Job didn't understand that. He didn't have the eternal perspective. So when God spoke out of heaven, he didn't answer any of Job's questions. He just said, Job, where were you when I created the heaven and the earth? Where were you? And then he said, tell me how I did this and tell me how I did that. And can you understand this? And can you understand that? So in other words, what's he, what's he saying? He's saying, I am God and you are not. And then Job's response to God's voice was, I repent, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So we must understand that without God, we are nothing. John 15 and 5. David's greatest fear after he sinned the sin of adultery and murder was that God would take his Holy Ghost away from him. That's Psalm 51 and 11. Saul ceased to be a good king when God removed his Holy Spirit from him. 1 Samuel 16 and 14. Contrast this scripture with 1 Samuel 16, 13 from that day forward. So God's spirit never 
left David. Both Saul and David sinned against God, but the difference was when confronted with their sin, Saul blamed the people and sought to justify himself. But David said, I have sinned against the Lord. So, but we know that David went on to be a great king. Saul does not have a good record. Why? The difference was the spirit of God. We are nothing without God. We must come humbly before God. Okay, so having taught all of this and said all of this, I'm going to try to bring this lesson to a close, but let me explain what uh, this message, this lesson came out of. I was teaching a Bible study at the prison, and there was a man that uh, was in prison, but he was a highly, highly, highly educated man, probably speaking of earthly knowledge and wisdom, the most intelligent man I have ever ran into in my entire life. I, I don't think I've ever met anybody as well-read and as knowledgeable as this man was, he could talk circles around me just as far as speaking of earthly knowledge. But he asked me a question one time, really attempted to stump me. He said, uh, if God, he said, you say God is love. And I said, well, yes, God is love. And he said, you say God is just. Yes, God is just. Um, he said, well, how do you explain Jesus killing children and killing women and killing everybody in Jerusalem in 70 AD because I had mentioned the fact that that was the judgments of God because they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. And he said, how do you explain children being slaughtered uh, because they had nothing to do with rejecting Jesus? And so uh, I know this man well enough to know that he would not uh, accept just a simple little answer there. And uh, I could tell him that obviously God is sovereign, God is just, uh, on and on and on. But this lesson is how I responded to him. I said, look, when it comes to questioning God's justice, I may have questions. I may not be able to explain everything about that, uh, the judgment in 70 AD and why children had to die. But when it comes to the justice of God, I'm going to take my hands off of it because in reality, I can try to come up with all kinds of answers. And, and you know, we can try to I've heard people try to discuss the fact they think all children are saved because they haven't reached the age of accountability. Look, when it comes to that, I'm not going to get into all that. What I'm going to talk about is just simply this. He is God and we are not. And really, we don't have any right to question his justice. Now, I know that's easier said than done. That's easy for me to say right now, but it won't be as easy to say when you're laying on your back in a hospital and you're suffering and God doesn't seem to come to the rescue. Or when you have a family member that's dying at a young age and you can't explain that. Look, I, I know that this lesson is not going to necessarily comfort people that are asking those kind of questions, but there may be somebody out there asking questions. And the intent of your questions is not a sincere question, but you're seeking to justify yourself. You may say, well, have you ever seen that? Yes. Uh, in fact, after praying about it, I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart and said, the reason he's asking that question is to justify himself, because if he can prove that God is not just, he feels like that justifies his lifestyle. And so after I taught this lesson, you know what? He stopped asking me about things like this. And I, he never asked me another question about the justice of God again. Um, and so let me let me just say this. Many times people are going to ask you questions, uh, be it biblical questions, but a lot of times it's going to be about the justice of God. If God is really just, what about this plane crash? What about September 11th? What about uh, people dying in, in Africa and starving to death? What about this? What about that? Look, don't get wrapped up in trying to answer questions about the justice of God. Uh, you can try to, to give a little answer, but most likely they're not going to be satisfied because many times when they ask, these, ask you these questions, they do gender strife. 
I've heard many times in debates with Christians against atheists, and the atheists will start bringing up all these arguments. In fact, I remember one, Christopher Hitchens, he's passed away now, but uh, he was debating a man by the name of Dr. William Lane Craig, and he brought up, he said, so you say that Jesus's sacrifice was for all humanity. He said, yet for we have this record of thousands of years, you say in the Bible, uh, where all of these people, these Gentile nations die without God. And then finally, Jesus comes to this remote area of the world and preaches to this little select group of people. And somehow that's and then dies on the cross. And, and uh, only a select group of people hear about it. And somehow that's supposed to be salvation for all the world. He said, you tell me how that's just. Well, the man tried to get up and he presented a pretty good argument to that. But in, the, in reality, I sat back and I thought, of course, that answer did not satisfy that atheist. Because the atheist wasn't asking that really because uh, he wanted an answer. He was trying to justify himself. So many times, that's what I found. When people ask questions about the justice of God, they seek to justify themselves. Don't get tied up and wrapped up in trying to answer those questions. Now, let me say this to somebody that might be asking the questions themselves. Uh, maybe there's somebody out there. You are righteous. You you have the Holy Ghost. You've been baptized in Jesus name, but you've recently had a family member die. You've had something like that happen. And you've got a lot of questions in your mind. Look, faith is not having all the answers to your questions. It's not having uh, uh, it's not about uh, the absence of all doubt. But what faith is, is despite the questions, you still take God at his word. You still believe in him. You still trust him. The Bible says in Proverbs 3 and 5, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all of thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Don't lean to your own understanding. Uh, don't allow the devil to keep putting questions in your mind. And really, again, this goes back to the lesson I just taught on Matthew chapter number four. The devil is the author of confusion, and he'll seek to put a lot of confusion in your mind and get you to question the justice of God. But overall, remember, God is sovereign. He has that eternal perspective. You don't know about the conversations going on in the heavenlies. Uh, you don't know about why you may be tested or why your family member died at a young age or why this happened or that happened. Um, there are some things we're never going to know until that great and glorious day. But, uh, you know, one thing I find interesting is uh, the Bible says that and now I'm sure the disciples had all kinds of questions. The Bible said when Jesus came to them after his resurrection, their questions were answered, but not all of them. Because remember, before he ascended up into heaven, they said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom again to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, brethren. Uh, he says, but this is what you need to be concerned about. Ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he said that, he ascended up into heaven. He didn't answer all of their questions. A lot of times Jesus will not answer some of your questions, but just continue to trust in him, believe in him. What's important is to accomplish the work while we're here in the earth. Just focus upon the task at hand. Don't allow the devil to bog your mind down with a lot of questions. It's only going to bring confusion. That's only going to gender strife. So hopefully this lesson has been a blessing to some of you. Thank you so much for listening.